postmodern and post-Christian are both terms that the, the church seriously needs to retire. We're going to the world to tell them who we are, and we're not going to the world to present who God is. The world in which so much is focused on building walls and keeping people out. An alternative way to live is to live by... It's almost like raising up a white flag and saying, ah, it's all the secular people's fault, and no one's listening or coming to our evangelistic how can we redesign Adventism to be effective at reaching emerging Western culture? That's what the Story Church podcast is all about. Adventism redesigned. Hey everyone, it's Pastor Marcus here and I want to welcome you back to another episode of the Story Church podcast. I want to begin today just by saying thank you to everyone who's written me so far, uh, expressing appreciation for uh, the new season, uh, the art of missional living. Uh, I've, I've gotten a lot of feedback, a lot of people really thankful for, you know, some of the practical elements that we've been exploring. And it's actually going to get more practical. So I'm glad that so far you've been able to find um, a lot of meaning and a lot of uh, value in what we've been exploring. Uh, before we jump on to today's episode, there is a book that I just uh, pretty much, I think I've got like one chapter left. I've I'm just about done reading it that I really, really want to recommend. Now, you got to be, um, you got to understand this, guys. I read literally a ton of books a year. So when I say a book is in my top five, that's, um, you know, that's a pretty big deal. At least for me, it is anyway, because I read a lot of books. So um, the book that I want to recommend, the, the title of the book, I can't remember the author right now. I probably should have written it down before I started recording. But you can just Google this or look it up on Amazon and you'll find it. The title of the book is Apathyism. How to Share When They Don't Care. Absolutely phenomenal book. Absolutely phenomenal. I might even do a season on it later on, um, some other time in, in the future. But uh, Apathyism, How to Share When They Don't Care. So look it up. Um, basically, apathy and theism, if you can combine those words together, apathyism, uh, you, can, you can spell it. Um, so yeah, check that book out. I think you're absolutely going to love it. Um, also want to uh, express thanks for all those who have messaged me saying, hey, heard your um, promotion for the R3 Network. Would like to check that out. I've had quite a few people message me for the information. And if you are actively looking for a, a different way of doing church that is program, well, let, let me rephrase that, that is not program-centered and not event-centered, but mission and people-centered, then let me know. I've got an, a brand new online school. The website hasn't fully gone public yet because there's still some work being done on the website itself. It's part of our church here in Coburn, WA. But the full course, the actual course itself is totally finished. So you can get access to that course and you can go step-by-step uh, step through the course. And I just want to remind for those of you who have already signed up and for those of you who are listening as well, that course is just a basic training. If you want to go deeper, if you want to explore this more, I'm trying to gather together a, a, a network of uh, micro church, missional church model um, type of Adventists out there. So if you look at this and you're like, yeah, I, I've enjoyed the training. I really want to do something like this. Then sign up in, in the little email box that it has there because once I'm ready, I'm going to be sending all of you an email because we're going to try and get a network together where we can have continued training because there's no way you can watch one set of training videos and have it all figured out. So we'll do continued training, continued empowerment, continued support 
through that R3 network. So if you're interested, message me, PM me on Facebook, uh, Instagram, Twitter, or you can email me through my website as well. Let me know. Hey, I'd love to check out that online course and, uh, and see how it can empower my own mission in my own local space. All right, guys, with all that said, I am going to go ahead and turn over to the next session of the Art of Missional Living. I hope you enjoy and uh, I'll catch you on the other side. Well, happy Sabbath, church. All right, let me try that again. Happy Sabbath, everyone. Aha, uh -huh, there you go. I know there's just a few of us here today, but we can still, we can still have a hearty, hearty happy Sabbath. It's good to see you all. Um, I'm just getting my remote here ready because I do have a PowerPoint slide that I'll be, I'll be sharing today. And I'm going to dive right into it because I got quite a bit to cover and I don't, uh, don't want to keep you guys here all morning. If we can be headed home before the, the rain starts pouring, that, that might be nice. Um, I wanted to take a moment today to go back into our sermon series that we've been exploring recently, The Art of Missional Living. But before I actually go into that sermon series, I wanted to answer a few questions. Because in our previous sermon, or the previous sermon in the series, what I did was I took the time to explore what does it mean when we look at the community that surrounds us and the world that surrounds us, and we recognize that, as I mentioned in the previous sermon from our stats, that roughly about 50% of Jundalup City is a, is a secular city. What does that look like? What does it mean? And we talked about postmodernism and secularism and the way in which people see the world and how we can contextualize. That's the word I use. I think I've got it up here. It's a big word. I know it's a big, boring word, um, contextualization. Um, but contextualization, it's a big, boring word, but it's also a simple word. Contextualization simply means how do I take the truth and present it in a way that makes sense to the context that I'm speaking to. That's all it means. But usually what happens when we talk about contextualization, especially if you haven't heard it before, is some people get a little uncomfortable. And they're like, what is the pastor talking about? Now, this isn't the first time I've presented this. I usually do this series as a workshop. Not as a sermon series, but because I have church in the afternoons as well, the only time I can really do it is in the mornings, which is why I've been doing it um, for our sermons. But I want to take a few moments to answer a few of the common questions that I get about contextualizing, and then hopefully it'll make total sense and you'll be able to see, oh, okay, this, this, this is biblical. <laughs> this is not some weird stuff. Um, before I do that, I also wanted to mention, once again, if anyone needs to gain access to the previous sermons or any sermon on this series, they are on our YouTube channel. Because I recognize these are, these are more training than they are your standard sermons, so there's quite a bit that's being shared. And if you need to go back and sort of refresh the memory or write some notes, or if you need the notes, the PowerPoints, let me know. I'm more than happy to, to provide them to you. So let me answer these three questions that I typically get about contextualization, and then I'll dive into the sermon um, or, or the, the actual presentation for today. So the first question that I usually get when it comes to contextualization is, does adapting the way we share the truth water down or compromise the truth? And this is a very interesting and a very, very important question. Does adapting the way we share the truth water down or compromise the truth? So I want to make this really clear. Watering down the truth or compromising the truth are not in any way, shape, or form, the same thing as contextualizing the truth. 
Contextualizing is actually something every single one of you already do or have done at some point in your life. If you're a teacher, you're constantly contextualizing so that your teachers understand the lesson. If you're a parent, you're constantly contextualizing so that your kids understand the lessons you're trying to teach them. And if you're a missionary and you're off working in foreign lands, foreign tribes, you're constantly contextualizing so that the people that you're speaking to understand what you're saying. Contextualization simply means, let me just get this slide here, contextualization simply means translation. That's what it means. It means translating the truth into a language, into illustrations, into angles that make sense to the context of the listener. That's all it means. So, for example, imagine two friends, all right? I, I, I will go with the secular friend because we talked about this last time, but imagine two friends. Imagine you have a Baptist friend and you imagine you have a secular friend, right? Now, imagine they both ask you, what is this Sabbath thing that you believe in as an Adventist? Explain it to me. Your Baptist friend has a completely different context to your secular friend. For example, your Baptist friend may want to know, does the Sabbath negate salvation by grace? Is keeping God's law legalism? That's a question your Baptist friend might be inclined to ask. But your, sec your secular friend doesn't know anything about the grace law debate, and he's never heard of legalism. So he's not going to ask that question. Your Baptist friend might ask, does keeping the Sabbath contradict the new covenant, whereas your secular friend has no idea what the older new covenant are because he's never heard of them. Your Baptist friend might ask, isn't the Sabbath only for the Jews, whereas your secular friend will be completely unfamiliar with the Jew-Gentile distinction in Scripture. And so what happens then is if you explain to your Baptist friend the Sabbath by answering these questions, it'll make more sense to him. But if you take these questions and you try and answer them as an explanation to your secular friend, he'll be lost. He won't know what in the world you're talking about. And so contextualization basically says, how do I take the same truth of the Sabbath and explain it to my Baptist friend in a way that makes sense to him, and then adapt that explanation in a way that will make sense to my secular friend? That's all contextualization is. So there's a few interesting quotes. By the way, I've only got two on this slide, but if you are interested, I actually have a, um, a sheet with, I don't know how many there are. Ellen White said a lot about contextualization. She spoke about it so much that if I shared all the quotes here, by the time I finished, the sermon time would be over. So I only put two. But if you're interested in more, um, let me know and I'll email them to you. Okay, so here's one from Gospel Workers where she says, we're living in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation and our nice and exact plans cannot always be carried out to the advantage of all. If we stand back upon our dignity, that's another way of saying if we're too proud to change, we will fail, we shall fail to help those who need help the most. The servants of Christ should accommodate themselves to the varied conditions of the people. They cannot carry out exact rules if they meet the cases of all. Labor will have to be varied to meet the people where they are. So she's talking about our methods there. And here's just one more. And again, if you want the rest of them, email me and I'll, I'll give them to you. The people of every country have their own peculiar distinctive characteristics and it is necessary that men should be wise in order that they may know how to adapt themselves to the peculiar ideas of the people and so introduce the truth that may do them good. They must be able to understand and meet their wants. This is contextualization. So the approach is going to be different then as you're speaking to different people in different contexts. But here's the beautiful thing about contextualization is that 
the beautiful thing that we learn from this is that in Scripture, truth, God's truth, is able to speak to every generation, to every culture, to every society, to every person, regardless of their context. That's the amazing thing about God's truth. It's not monocolor, right? It's not, it's not, it's not you know, monochrome. It's multicolor. It can reach anyone, anywhere, anytime, any generation, any culture. God's truth has a way of speaking into that. That's the beautiful thing about God's truth. So if you want to be a missionary in your city and half your city is secular, then you have to learn how to explain the truth in a way that makes sense to them, not just in ways that make sense to people who are already, already in some sort of a Christian background. So that's the first question. Um, contextualizing the truth is not the same as watering down or compromising it. Um, this is another question that I usually get. Can't the Holy Spirit reach everybody? What's the point of contextualizing the truth if the Holy Spirit is the one who leads us to truth? There's a common question that I, that I often get. And to this question, I would say, yes, 100%, the one, is the, the one who reaches people is the Holy Spirit. It's not us. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't contextualize, and here's why. Because the greatest contextualizer in the Bible is the Holy Spirit. Contextualization, then, is something that we learn from Scripture. It's not a human invention. For example, let's take a look at Jesus, Paul, and the Holy Spirit. One of the ways in which we typically present the gospel today is John 3.16, you know, be born again. If you want to be in the kingdom of heaven, you have to be born again. Born again is a framework that Jesus uses to explain the gospel to Nicodemus. He says to Nicodemus, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you must be born again. And most of the time when we preach the gospel, even today, we always use this framework. It's interesting to note, though, that if you read the entire gospels, all four of them, Jesus only uses this framework one time. And he uses it with a man who was born a Jew and who believed that because his natural birth of, as a Jew was from Abraham, that he was going to go to heaven automatically. And Jesus says to this man who believes his natural birth can get him into heaven, actually, you have to be born again. So that born-again framework was directly geared to speak to Nicodemus' context as a Jew. But if you go to the very next chapter of, John, chapter, uh, of the book of John, he meets a woman at the well. He doesn't say anything about being born again. Instead, he frames the gospel as living water. Why? Because the woman had had five husbands, and the man she was with now wasn't her husband. She had spiritual thirst. That was her context. She was not a Jew. She was a Samaritan. Telling her to be born again wouldn't have made much sense to her. So Jesus contextualizes. He changes the approach. It's the same truth with a different framework. Um, we also have the rich young ruler, and I can go on and on and on, right? The rich young ruler, Jesus doesn't say anything about living water. He doesn't say anything about being born again. What is the rich young ruler's context? He idolizes his money, his wealth. And so Jesus tells him, if you want treasure in heaven, you got to sell everything that you have and come follow me and you'll have eternal treasure, right? So Jesus speaks of treasure. He speaks of spiritual wealth to a man who was obsessed with material wealth. This is contextualization. Another example of this in, in the work of, of Paul, very, very interesting. Acts chapter 15, one of the, the main themes of Acts chapter 15 is that circumcision is anti-gospel, right? The Judaizers were going around and they were saying, in order for a Gentile to be a follower of Jesus, they have to be circumcised first, right? I'm not talking about circumcision as a medical act. I'm talking about it as a religious act. 
Um, in order for a, a Gentile to become a Christian, they have to be circumcised as a Jew first, and then they can become a Christian. Well, Paul says no. Circumcision of the flesh doesn't count anymore. It's circumcision of the heart. Circumcision as a physical act that's supposed to recommend you to God, Paul actually makes painstakingly clear this is anti-gospel. The, Jew, the Gentiles do not have to be circumcised to join the community of faith in the flesh. They need to be circumcised in their hearts, the Holy Spirit. Now, here's the interesting thing. This is the, one of the focal points of Acts chapter 15. Circumcision is no longer needed. And then in Acts chapter 16, Paul circumcises Timothy. You ever notice that? You ever wonder why? It's like, Paul, you just spent a whole chapter saying circumcision is no longer needed. And then in the very next chapter, you circumcise Timothy. Are you contradicting yourself, Paul? The answer is no, and you can look it up when you get home today in Acts chapter 16. The reason why Paul circumcises Timothy is because they were about to go on a missionary journey, and they were going to be interacting with many Jews, and he didn't want Timothy being uncircumcised to be a stumbling block. So he contextualized, a very painful contextualization. He contextualized, he said, Timothy, this has nothing to do with your relationship with God, but in order to meet the Jews where they are, we're going to circumcise you. This is contextualization. Later on in 1 Corinthians 9, 19-23, Paul puts it beautifully. He says this, Though I am free of obligation to anyone, I make myself a slave to everyone, to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, to win those under the law. To those without the law, I became like one without the law, though I am not outside of the law of God, but I'm under the law of Christ. To win those without the law. He's talking about the Gentiles here. To the weak, I became weak. To win the weak, I became all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I do this all for the sake of the gospel so that I might share in its blessings. So what is Paul talking about here? Again, he's talking about contextualization, right? Contextualizing the gospel so it makes sense to people who have different beliefs and worldviews is not a human invention. It comes straight from the Bible. It's the Holy Spirit's method of reaching people. So when someone says to me, no, I'm not going to contextualize. I'm just going to present the gospel, present these ideas the way I've always done it. What you're really saying is I'm going to do it my way instead of God's way. God's way is contextualization. Jesus did it. Paul did it. And Jesus said it very clear. I say nothing of my own. Everything I say is what the Holy Spirit has told me to say. One more question, and then we'll get into our, 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 our actual talk for today. Won't people come if we just preach the truth? This is a question that I often get as well. And usually when people ask this question, I realize they still haven't gotten the point. <laughs> Contextualization has nothing to do with eroding again or watering down the truth. Of course, we need to preach the truth. No one is saying don't preach the truth. Well, I suppose some people are saying, but it's not me. <laughs> I am not saying don't preach the truth or compromise the truth, or water down the truth, or change what you believe in order to match what people out there believe. That's not what contextualization is either. And so here I find it helpful to give a distinction. There is a distinction in, in missiology, the, the study of missions, there is a distinction between contextualization and syncretism. Now I know that's another big word, but follow with me and it'll make, it'll make good sense. Syncretism is when you synchronize 
biblical faith with what other people believe to try and make it more palatable. Contextualization is when you adapt the message so it makes sense to the context. They're totally different things. So a perfect example, because um, we talked about postmodernism in the previous presentation, a perfect example of syncretism, for those of you who are familiar, would be the emergent church movement. The emergent church movement was a movement that started out in the late 90s, early 2000s, that basically said, we need to reach the postmoderns, so let's take postmodernism and reinterpret the whole Bible through it. That's syncretism. And so what they ended up doing was they ended up actually getting rid of some of the key doctrines of Christian faith. If you ask someone in the emergent church movement, um, is Jesus God? They would say, maybe, maybe not. Why? Because postmodernism doesn't believe in truth. Maybe it's true, maybe it's not. So they, they reinterpreted scripture this way. This is syncretism. And in case anyone needs it to be perfectly clear, I do not support syncretism at all. <laughs> Contextualization is totally different. You are not reinterpreting scripture in order to make it palatable for people. What you're doing in contextualization is, again, you take the Bible truth and you translate it faithfully so that people from diverse backgrounds and beliefs can understand it without unnecessary stumbling blocks. So yes, we should preach the truth. No one, or at least I am not arguing against that. Um, but what we need to do is we need to learn how to do it in a way that makes sense to a diversity of listeners. So, for example, to go back to, to um, well, I think I turned this off, just to go back to my Baptist and secular friend. For my Baptist friend, a framework of law and grace may be necessary for him to understand where I'm coming from when I share the Sabbath. But for my secular friend, a framework of evolution and creation might be more helpful. You see the picture? If I talk to him about the dif dif difference between law and grace, it's not, he, he's never grown up in church. He's never heard these debates. What does he care about, you know, law and grace? And this is why with secular friends that I have studied the Bible with, when I share the Sabbath with them, I've never had one of them say, but what about grace? It's not in their background. It's not in their framework. In fact, I've never had a single secular friend tell me, the Sabbath thing is nonsense. I don't like it. Most of the time, they love it. They think it's awesome because it speaks to so many issues that they're already passionate about. Um, so my Baptist friend might be interested in uh, exploration of the Old and New Covenant. It's kind of something we're talking about in our Sabbath school lessons now. My secular friend won't understand that. He's never heard this stuff. But consumerism in our culture and how we base our value on how much we do and do and do and how much we produce versus the biblical idea that we are valuable because we are God's creation is something that the Sabbath speaks into. And so if I reframe it in that way, it will preach preaching the same truth from a different angle. Again, Jew Gentile might make sense to my Baptist friend, oppression and rest, right? The Sabbath emerges out of this, um, it doesn't emerge out of, it emerges from creation, but it's, it takes on a new meaning when the people of Israel are released from slavery, from the oppression of their taskmasters. And now the Sabbath becomes not just a celebration of creation, but a celebration of freedom from slavery, freedom from oppression. There's rest. Right? And so if I explain the Sabbath this way to a secular friend of mine, he's familiar with or she's familiar with oppression and rest. That makes sense to them. So it will make more sense. This is, again, a simple way of presenting the same truth but from a different angle. That's contextualization. All right. So if anyone has any more questions, I'm kind of flying a little fast because I do, I do want to get to the main topic before we run out of time. But if anyone has any more questions, feel free to um, 
feel free to message me. I'd be happy to, to explore some more. Now, how can I develop the skill of contextualization? Because it is a skill, right? How can I develop the skill? Number one, pray for the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is the greatest. He is the originator of contextualization, right? Pray for the Holy Spirit to give you discernment as you're sharing your faith with others. And especially those of us who are raising children right now, whether you like it or not, your children will be impacted by postmodernity. Their worldview will be colored by it. You will have to learn to present the faith that you grew up with in a different way so that they're not scared off or freaked out or in a way that actually makes sense to them because there's no way they're not going to be impacted by it. The Holy Spirit is the number one thing that we need in order to become effective at this. Number two, study and meditate on Jesus' work. Jesus was always contextualizing. I gave you three examples. There's a thousand more. Study it. Look at it. Ask those questions. Why is Jesus explaining the gospel this way to this guy and that way to the other guy? And, and dissect it and, and peel it back and pray about it, and you'll be able to develop those skills. And finally, which is probably the most common sense one, is Get to know, listen to, and seek to understand friends who don't share your faith. In other words, build some friendships with people who see the world different from you. You're never, ever, ever going to be effective at contextualizing if you only surround yourself with people who think exactly like you do and who believe exactly like you do. Make some friends. I mean, you know, Jesus said it. A, a city on a hill cannot be hid. You don't take a lamp and hide it under your bed, right? Make some friends. Make some connections. And, and listen. Listen. Listen deeply. Pray for the Holy Spirit. Listen and learn. Don't just rush to preach. Don't rush to teach. Listen, learn, and you will develop those skills of contextualization. All right. So those are the three questions. I'm going to say a quick prayer. We're going to do our main theme, and then I'll let you guys go. Father in heaven, Lord, you've given us a mission to reach this city. And despite all the difficulties and challenges that the Jundalup Community Church has had over the years, you have been faithful. You have been faithful in blessing us. You have been faithful in guiding us. Even through this COVID scenario, Lord, you've blessed this church with wonderful leaders who cared and who reached out and connected and did their best to maintain our, our community. And now as we gather again and we look forward to continuing our mission in this city, you are challenging us to think of mission not so much in the sense of a big program that we do, but to think of mission in the sense of each and every one of us being missionaries in this city. Each and every one of us embracing the call to reach our neighbors, to reach our friends, to reach our co-workers. And so as we spend a few more moments this morning looking at Paul in Acts chapter 17, I pray that you would speak to our hearts, that you would open our hearts and that we would leave this place excited to be missionaries for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, open your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. Let's do this. Let's do this. Acts chapter 17. And as you're headed there, I'm just going to do a summary of what we've seen so far. This might be a bit repetitive, but I need to do it because I understand that a lot is being said. And oftentimes, repetition is the best way to... To, to get it locked in. So lesson one that we learned from Paul and his work in Athens with the pagans in Acts chapter 17. To reach a city, you have to leave the comfort of the building, of your church building, and go where people are. We haven't expanded on that one. That's going to be the last point that I expand on. There's two more sermons in this series, and then we're done. Lesson two. 
Paul's provocation did not turn into condemnation. Remember, he was walking around the city and he was provoked by the idolatry. And I really, really sincerely hope that each and every one of you, when you look at the world that we live in, that you're provoked by the injustices and, and, and the wickedness that surrounds us. We ought to be provoked by it. But Paul didn't allow his provocation to turn into condemnation. He used it as fuel for respectful missional engagement. Um, a recommendation, Acts of the Apostles, read the chapter on Paul and Mars Hill in Acts of the Apostles. I can't remember um, which chapter it is, specific, what number it is, but it's in there. Look it up. It's so good. Um, and then the third lesson, reaching our city is a partnership between us and God. We must work with him and like him in order to reach others. And like him means contextualization because that's how God has always worked. So we looked at lesson three in our first sermon, or sorry, our second one. We expanded on that. We made three sub points about our partnership between us and God. Don't burn bridges by focusing on differences. Build bridges by focusing on common ground. Don't approach people from a top-down posture. I know everything, you know nothing. Go side by side. We're both seeking. Let's journey together. And become a student of your city. This is contextualization of your neighbors so that you can share the gospel in ways that make sense to them. And then we went to lesson two. This is the one that we looked at last week. And we broke lesson two down, again, into three little sub-points. Instead of attacking the culture, find the evidence of God within the culture because you're looking for that bridge. Uh, contextualize or translate your explanation of truth so that it makes sense to your hearer's context. And remember, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Those are the three simple lessons that we looked at. Now, for today, I'm going to repeat all of these lessons. I'm going to hang out at lessons, the sub-lessons of point number two um, for today and for the next sermon, and then we'll finish with, with going to lesson the key lesson number one. So I want to look at really quickly, how did Paul do with these points in lesson number two? Instead of attacking the culture, find the evidence of God within the culture. That is the first thing that we learned from Acts 17. How did Paul do with this? Well, Paul explores the Athenian culture and finds evidence of God within. It's the unknown God. He goes to the Athenians. He says to them, I see that you're very religious. I was walking around your city. I found this one altar to the unknown God. I've come to tell you about him. The one you worship in ignorance, I've come to talk to you about him. Paul found evidence that God was already at work in the Athenian culture. He didn't just attack them. He found that evidence. Point B, contextualize or translate your explanation of truth so that it makes sense to your hearer's context. This is what Paul does as well. He reframes, contextualizes, adapts his explanation of truth so it makes sense to the Athenians. And I'm going to explore that a little bit more today. We're actually going to look at the sermon he preaches and see how he does this. It's brilliant. And finally, people don't know how much you know or don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Paul demonstrates love by his familiarity with Athenian culture and his respectful engagement. Um, as we saw, when you look at Acts 17, there's an interesting dynamic because first Paul goes to Thessalonia, then he goes to the Bereans, then he goes to Athens. And when you read those stories, when he's with the Thessalonians, the book of Acts specifically tells us he opened the scriptures. And then when he goes to the Bereans, it tells us they were searching the scriptures. But when we get to the Athenians, Paul's not using the scriptures. Now, he obviously talks about what the scriptures teach, but he doesn't open the scriptures. Why? Because the Athenians had no idea what that was. And so Paul summarizes the story of the Bible because that's where the truth is anchored. But then when he quotes something, instead of quoting scripture, he quotes a pagan poet by the name of Epimenides, which we'll see in a little bit. 
And what Paul is doing with this is he's demonstrating a kinship. He's demonstrating love and respect to his listeners when they realize, hey, this guy is not here to beat us up. He's, he actually cares. He's taken time to know us. He's taken time to understand us. There was a number of them who responded to his call. So let's see this in action. If you're in Acts chapter 17, I'm going to read starting from verse 24. Verse 24. It says this. The Lord God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven. This is Paul's sermon. Paul begins his sermon with the Athenians. He's done his introduction, and now he goes into his main body. The Lord God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and he doesn't live in temples built by human hands. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Paul begins his sermon by speaking of this transcendent God who is the source of everything and who needs nothing from us. He is the source of all. We, we, we don't bless him. We don't serve him. It's the opposite way. He gives to us what we need. Now, it's interesting because when you study Greek philosophy, there was a concept within Greek philosophy called the logos. Logos means knowledge. The, the, the logos basically was this idea within Greek philosophy that everything originated from a singular point. Everything originated from a common one source. And that source then is the thing that, from which everything else emanates. And we see this, in fact, in the book of John, because John is contextualizing to a non-Jewish audience. John begins his gospel by saying, in the beginning was the Logos. And the Logos was with God. And the Logos was God. We translate Logos as word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. John is using this Greek idea because he's trying to communicate the story of Jesus to the Greeks. He's like, the Logos. Yes. In the beginning, he was there with God, and he was God, and he goes on to tell the story of Jesus. Paul, in his sermon, begins, you can see his understanding of the way his Greek audience thinks, because he begins by, he doesn't use the word logos, but he's explaining the same basic idea. There is a God in whom everything originates. He is the source of everything. He himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. So he starts on common ground, on something that they can agree on. It may not be identical to what the Greeks believe because the Greeks didn't believe that God was personal being. So clearly Paul isn't agreeing with them on that point. But it's enough of a bridge where they can say, okay, we, we get that. We can start from that. We can make sense of that. And then Paul continues, verse 26 to 27. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. Now, notice this. Oh, I love this, you guys. This is so cool. He made all the nations from one man that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times and histories and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. What is Paul saying here? I mean, listen to it. This is absolutely brilliant. Brilliant. Paul's point here is that God, from the beginning of time, 
has been drawing all the nations to himself. He has maneuvered history and geography in order to bring people from every nation to himself. He's not far from any one of us, Paul says. Notice what Paul doesn't say. Paul doesn't say, oh, you people, yeah, you guys don't know anything. God's only been speaking to us, and so let me tell you what he's saying. No, no, no. Paul does the opposite. He says, God has been at work, people of Athens. He's been at work in your history. He's been at work even in your geography with one goal, to bring you to himself. He did this so that you would seek him and perhaps reach out for him. Well, what is the altar to the unknown God if not the Athenian people reaching out? They had all these idols all over the city, and it's not enough. They're not satisfied. They're like, something is missing. So we're going to build this altar to this altar because we know there's something. We just don't know what it is. We're reaching out. We're, and, and Paul comes to them and he says, look, that is evidence that throughout your entire history, God has been working He's been drawing you to himself. And then, to prove his point to his listeners, Paul quotes a pagan poet, Epimenides. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. So Paul has reframed his explanation of truth so that it makes sense to the Athenians. He presents this message of God orchestrating all things for one purpose, to draw them to himself. He's become familiar with their worldview. He's become familiar with their art, with their poetry. He's provoked by the wickedness he sees in the city, but he allows that to move him into this love and respectful dialogue. And sometimes I wonder, why is it so hard? for us to do that in the modern day. I think there's numerous reasons why we tend to struggle with this. One of the reasons I think why we struggle with this is because if you go back 50 years, most of Western society was Christian. So if you took some Christians from America, for example, and you said, we want to reach the people of Papua New Guinea, you would take them to a mission school and you would teach them all this stuff. You would teach them how to contextualize, how to, how to engage people respectfully, how to understand the culture, how to translate the truth so it made sense. You would teach them all these things and then you would send them to Papua New Guinea. Go, preach the gospel. And if they needed to go to, you know, some other place in the world, you know, in Asia or Africa, you would, you would train your missionaries and you would send them. But you didn't have to train missionaries in the West because everybody around you was already sort of Christian. And this is why in the previous sermon, I talked about the impact of postmodernism because in the last 50 years, postmodernism has virtually obliterated almost all trace of Christian heritage in the Western world, which means we no longer inhabit a Christian society. The Western world, Australia, Canada, America, the UK, these are mission fields. Just as much as Papua New Guinea was a mission field, just as much as Asia and Africa, these are mission fields. And the reason why 
in the West, we haven't learned how to do the work of a missionary is because when our churches were first born, it wasn't really necessary. Most people already understood what Christianity was about. And if you just presented the simple gospel the way everyone understood it, then you could challenge them, you could, you could invite them, you, you, know, you, you, could, you could bring them to Christ. But it's so different now, it's so overwhelmingly different that we must learn how to be missionaries because the West is now a mission field. And so I would say this. Paul takes the message of Jesus and he presents it using language and categories that the Athenians can understand. He tells them that Jesus is the unknown God and he quotes one of their own poets to drive his point home. He's setting an example here of how the Holy Spirit reaches people. And my challenge to each and every one of you, if you want to see the kingdom of heaven take root in the city of Jundalup, we must learn how to do the same. Each and every one of us. This isn't the pastor's job. This isn't the evangelist's job. Because you know what the crazy thing about postmodernism and the impact it's had on the world is? It means that the vast majority of secular people out there, the moment they meet me, they already don't trust me because I'm a pastor. So I'm actually at a handicap. The best people to reach the cities, not pastors and evangelists, we, we, people don't like us no more. The best people to reach the city is your neighbor, your coworker, your friend, the person you go to the gym with, the person you play softball with or whatever, your cricket, you know, we're in Australia. Um, you know, these are the best people to reach the city for the kingdom of heaven. But Paul isn't done yet. Paul isn't done yet. The bridge has been built, right? He's built this bridge. And now that he has crossed it over, he's able to present his challenge. Because this is not syncretism, right? Paul has carefully built this bridge because he has a challenge for the Athenian people. He has a rebuke for them. And we see it here in the next verse. He goes on in verse 29. Therefore, since we are God's offspring. We agree to that, right, guys? All right, we all agree. We are God's offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. What was Athens known for? What was the, the biggest thing Paul found when he got to Athens? Statues, idols. So now... In the middle of his sermon, after Paul has built his bridge, after he's, he's built the rapport, the connection, now he brings the challenge. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that a divine being is, can be reflected in statues of gold and silver, an image made by human design. God's greater than that. Clearly, Paul is not syncretizing. He's challenging the culture. But here's the thing, he's built a bridge, and now that he's crossed the bridge, he can present his challenge. The problem with many in the church today is that we want to challenge the culture without building a bridge. We want to stand on the outside and rebuke and attack without building the bridge. And let's be honest, building the bridge is hard. Getting to know people demands sacrifice. 
It's easier to attack, to condemn, to judge. It's harder to draw close, to get to know your neighbor, to love them like God loved you, to incarnate into their lives and adapt your approach so that they can encounter Jesus without unnecessary barriers. That's hard work. That actually means that some evenings, instead of vegging out and watching Netflix, I actually need to take the time to get to know how I can reach my city. I actually need to carry this cross, this burden of incarnating in my neighborhood and getting to know. This is hard stuff, you guys. This is not easy. Now, in the previous sermon, I'm getting close to finishing here. In the previous sermon, I talked about how roughly 50% of Jude and is secular and unchurched, which basically means postmodernism is the primary way in which people are, are secular and unchurched today. Modern secularists are people who tend to believe in evolution, in the primacy of science, sort of Richard Dawkins' world, you know, very skeptical, um, the new atheist movement, all those things, modern secularists. Postmodern secularists are not like that. They're, they're actually quite different. They don't tend to agree with evolution any more than they agree with religion. And if they go with it, they go with it because it's like, ah, it's the best thing we've got, but they're not necessarily committed to it. In postmodernism, truth doesn't exist. And your truth is your truth, and my truth is mine. And you can present the most beautiful presentation of the gospel, and it's met with, hey, I'm glad it works for you, not for me. I know because it's happened to me. I'm like, oh, I thought that was great. And then it was like, oh, yeah, that's for you, not for me. Absolute truth claims in postmodernism are seen as the foundation of all oppression. That's why they're rejected so badly. Now, this is a super, super, super simplified, which I did in the last time, a very simplified approach to postmodernism. I'm not going into any detail more than this because it, it can get heavy. But the point is, in secular terms today, when it comes to reaching our neighbors, and our neighbors are impacted by this way of seeing the world, we need to apply Paul's steps. We need to ask. Instead of attacking the culture, find evidence within. So where is God already present in the postmodern culture of secular Jundalup? See, here's the point that I'm getting at. If each and every one of us aren't engaging in these questions and actively seeking answers, the gospel will never take root in Jundalup. You can't depend on pastors. You can't depend on evangelists. You can't depend on big programs, especially in pandemic context, right? Each and every one of us need to be asking this question, where is God already present in my friend's life, in my neighbor's life, in, in, this, in this culture that provokes me with this idea that there's no such thing as truth? I mean, that's terrible. It provokes me, but okay, you're provoked. Now, how do you, how do you build that bridge and help them see actually there is truth and his name is Jesus? Contextualize and translate your explanation of truth so it makes sense to your hearer's context. Once again, how can we explain God in a way that makes sense to these unchurched postmodern neighbors who have a totally different set of assumptions about reality than we do? Do we ask these questions? Do we wrestle with these questions? Do we agonize and pray over these questions? This is what it means to be a missionary. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. How can we demonstrate love and action in a way that will deepen our friendships? What are we doing as a church to show the community we care about you? What are we doing individually to share, show our community we care about you? Without these things, the gospel will not take root in our city. And this is not the job of elders and it's not the job of, it's the job of all of us. And it's going to look different because we all have different gifts and we have different personalities and we have different temperaments. Some of us are more academic than others. Others are more practical than, it's going to look different for each of us. 
But we all have to be wrestling with the questions. We all have to be exploring and seeking ways in which we can build these connections. But here's the thing. Jundalup isn't merely secular. There's also a strong Buddhist and Muslim presence here. So the same thing applies. What do they believe? And by the way, I think this is a great opportunity for me to give you a huge warning. You do not learn what other people believe by finding someone on YouTube who's attacking them and learning what they believe from that person. You know how I learned that? When I saw a video, this was years ago, I was still in university, I saw a video by an ex-Adventist on YouTube. And she was talking about why she left the Adventist church and all the things we believe. I didn't recognize half of it. I was like, what's this lady talking about? Like, what church does she go to? You do not get an accurate understanding of what other people believe by finding someone who's attacking them or trying to expose them, right? You get an understanding of what they believe by actually going to the horse's mouth. So what do they believe? If I were to ask you, what does your Buddhist co-worker believe? What does your Muslim co-worker believe? Do you know? Where is God at work in their life, in their worldview? Are you familiar with it? Have you found that bridge, that point of connection? Oh, whoops. How can we build friendship with these people that will show them that we care for them? Right? We think of Christ's method alone that Ellen White talks about in Desire of Ages. Christ's method alone will give true success in reaching the people. He mingled with others as one who desired their good. He ministered to their needs. How can we do this? Right? These are the questions that each and every one of us need to be asking on a regular basis. And if we don't ask them, how do we expect to reach them? Now, I've asked that question before, and I've had people say, oh, the Holy Spirit can do it. But need I remind you, the Holy Spirit doesn't work for us. He works with us. So I'm going to wrap this up with a quick Bible story to bring this point home. The Holy Spirit doesn't work for us. He works with us. In Acts chapter 10, we read the story of an Italian soldier. I believe he was a centurion in the Italian regiment, Cornelius. Cornelius, the Bible says, is a man who fears God. And he's helped the Jewish people, and they like him. He's a, he's a Gentile, but he's different to the others. And in the story we read that an angel actually comes and talks with Cornelius. I'm like, man, I've been in Adventist all my life. I haven't had an angel visit me yet. How cool would that be? An angel comes and talks with Cornelius. And here's the strange thing. The angel says to Cornelius, I want you to go to this location and look for this man named Peter. That's what I want you to do. Now, here's my question to you guys, especially for people who say, oh, the Holy Spirit will do the work. Here's my question. Why in the world did the angel tell Cornelius to go find Peter? I mean, Cornelius already feared God. He may not have had a broad understanding. He may not have heard of Jesus, but, but he, there was something there that he, was, that he was honoring, that he was attempting to, to orient his life toward. And the angel tells him, go find Peter. And it's like, but the angel's there. Why doesn't the angel preach the gospel to Cornelius? He's there. It's like, why... Why go look for Peter? I mean, you're there, Mr. Angel, whichever angel this is. It's like, just sit down on a table. Hey, Cornelius, I'm going to teach you the truth. But instead, the angel tells Cornelius, go and find Peter. 
And then the story moves over to Peter, and we find Peter, he's having this dream. And in the dream, he sees a basket full of unclean food. And it comes down, and God tells Peter, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter says, God, I haven't touched anything unclean my entire life. So it goes away. It comes back. Peter, kill and eat. Peter replies the same thing. I haven't touched anything unclean my entire life. So it goes away. It comes back again. Peter, kill and eat. I haven't touched anything unclean my entire life. Three times. Three times the vision comes. Peter responds the same thing. God responds the same way. Do not call unclean what I have cleaned. Now, what in the world is this about? Well, it turns out after the third vision that God speaks to Peter and says, there's three men waiting for you at the door. Go with them. He sees the vision three times. There's three men. The three men are Gentiles. In the Jewish economy, in the Jewish mindset, Gentiles were unclean. God was trying to communicate to Peter, I have cleansed the Gentiles. Faith in Jesus cleanses everybody. Jewish people are not the only people that are righteous in my sight. Anyone who has faith can be declared righteous. But Peter was, you know, he had this real nationalist idea lodged into his head that Gentiles were unclean. You don't associate with them. You stay away from them. You don't touch them. They're unclean. Well, God has just challenged this notion of Peter. He comes to Peter. He says, hey, three men waiting for you. Peter goes downstairs, the three Gentile men. We want you to come with us to see Cornelius. Peter goes. And then at the end, I'm just summarizing the story here. Peter says to this room full of Gentiles that he's just presented the gospel to, they've been filled with the Spirit, and Peter says, I now realize what God was trying to teach me, that he's called from every nation, from every tribe. Everyone is welcome in the kingdom of heaven. This isn't about Jew and Gentile. That distinction doesn't exist in Jesus Peter has this transformation. He realizes, I can't look at these people like they're unclean because they're not. They're, they're, they have faith in Jesus. I have faith in Jesus. We're brothers. We're sisters. Peter is transformed. So what is the point of this, right? Why, why am I saying this story? Because the reason why God didn't just tell the angel, hey, preach the gospel to Cornelius, and the reason why God doesn't just magically do the work for us is because he isn't just trying to reach people out there. He's trying to reach us. The reason why God calls you to carry this cross of being a missionary in your city and doesn't just go out and do it himself is because they're not the only ones who need to be transformed. You do too. And so do I. And so God puts this burden, this mission onto us as a pathway toward which we can be transformed into his image. He's not only trying to reach them, he's trying to reach us. He wants to change us, to transform us, to get us out of our comfort zones and religious bubbles and turns us into people who live like Jesus. And how did Jesus live? Did he hide from people? Did he judge people? No. In the greatest act of contextualization in the history of mankind, the Bible tells us God incarnated into human flesh. The divine mystery became a physical human being. He moved into our neighborhood, and he got to know us, and he wants us to imitate him to incarnate in the lives of others because he now lives in us. All right, I'm going to close this. 
Okay, I have a challenge. I have a challenge for you guys today. I'll be back in a couple of weeks. And here's my challenge for you. If you want to be a missional Adventist, I want you to begin here. I'm going to make it so easy. It can't possibly be too hard. You guys ready? Because I have a challenge for you. I got homework for you to do in the next two. You got two weeks to do this, all right? Two weeks, and I'll be back. Here's my challenge for you. All you have to do is read or listen. That's it. I'm not even asking you to go make a friend. Not, we'll do that later. Right now, all I want you to do is either read. You pick one or the other. If you want to do both because you have time, go for it. But you, you just have to pick one or the other. Read or listen. That's it. Make sense? Here's the challenge. On our website, if you go to jundelapsdachurch.com.au, the very front page where the YouTube video for the sermons are, there's two buttons underneath. One button is for an ebook on studying the Bible with postmoderns. It's a like 80-page ebook. You could read it in less than an hour. All right? Two weeks. That's it. Two weeks. I mean, that's a lot, I suppose, for an 80-page book. Download it, read it. That's all you have to do. Now, maybe you don't like reading. That's okay. So directly under that link, there's another button for a podcast on world religions. It's done by a, a young Nazarene guy. His name is J.R. Forresteros. He does this whole podcast on world religions. It's really, really beautiful. And if you click on the button, it'll take you directly to the episode on Buddhism. It explains to you what do they believe, how is it different from Christianity, how do we reach them. You can listen to that. So those of you who are like, I don't like reading. Reading, it takes me forever. Don't read that. Just listen to that. One of two things. Now, if you want to do them both, go for it. If you want to be really, really cool, you can do both. But that's my challenge for you this week. Just one of those two things. For the next two weeks, either read the ebook or listen to one of the episodes on the World Religions Podcast. He has episodes on Islam as well, and I think he even has Mormons on there. I mean, there's a whole bunch of them. But just listen to it. Get to know. Get to learn. Get, become familiar with how these people think, how they see the world, so that as we go into the next few sermons and the challenge gets a little bit more personal, you'll begin to develop within you the skills necessary to be a missionary in this city. How would you like an Adventist Bible study set designed for millennials, postmoderns, and unchurched seekers? The Road, A Journey Through the Narrative of Scripture is a one-of-a-kind Bible study set that I've designed to communicate the story of redemption to unchurched generations. With 30 chapters in total, you'll get to discover the gospel, prophecy, and even end-time events in a fresh, meaningful, and relevant way. To learn more about this and get your own copy, head over to thestorychurchproject.com.